Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for the bigger picture today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy. And we are recording this just after the Russians launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So, Tim, there isn't really anything else we can discuss, though clearly, given that people listen to the podcast sometime after we record it, events could could change significantly. But where are we going to, to start? Well, I think the first thing to say is, yes, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. Um, uh, uh, and, the, and the first thing to say about the invasion uh, is it has actually clearly been planned for quite some time. And rather like with the rise of Hitler in the 1930s, particularly around the uh, annexation of Austria through the Anschluss and subsequently the German um, intervention in the Sudetenland in the Czech Republic and then mm. later the capturing of uh, Czechoslovakia and indeed the threatening of Poland. Although we shouldn't forget that when the Germans invaded Poland, um, they did it very much in cahoots with the Russians because they had signed uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So the Germans attacked from the West and the Russians attacked from the East. What's extraordinary, though, is the sort of victimhood, the rhetoric that Hitler used on that journey. And boy, how similar is it mm. to the victim mindset um, that the Vladimir Putin has invoked in the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine. You know, he's calling it a Nazi state. Um, he's talking about the liberation of Ukraine, uh, as if the people are somehow uh, oppressed. Um, uh, and, and I think this is the first time for almost a century, you know, for certainly 80 or 90 years, where, where West Europeans uh, have been witness to such grotesque uh, and palpably forced disinformation. Um, you know, we haven't really had anything like mm. this on this kind of scale. Yes, so, he's calling Ukraine the aggressor, but... Yes, exactly. What, what, what aggression? And, and of course, he's, he is a KGB uh, officer of his generation, which means that, as with the, the real Nazis, um, he's turning reality completely on its head. Um, he is lying. But what's shocking about it, and you saw this with Adolf Hitler, is that the lie is so great, he's almost deluding himself. Um, uh, his hatred is so great. His fanaticism is so great. His, um, the, you know, the, the, the sense of his injustice, uh, the upsetment that he's clearly suffered uh, since 1989, the coming down of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, you know, all, the whole thing. Um, this is pent-up anger. The other thing I would say is that this is a man who's been somewhat paranoid about COVID. Uh, he has apparently 
um, hid himself away, uh, almost in physical terms, away from most of his government, most of the ministers and the administration. Mm. He's been in sort of a, a self-isolating room to which you want to get to it is some sort of artificial tunnel um, and only an, a very small inner coterie can get to him. Um, and much of that coterie, apparently, they're not the frontline politicians and, and ministers that, that form his government. They're the sort of people who are a little coterie of his sort of generation of KGB hood. Mm -hmm. now, you know, this is someone who just strikes me, who's, who's sort of almost mentally deteriorated in recent years um, uh, and is now riven with a perspective that is almost wholly divorced from reality and and for me the, the the image that's conjured up is in that extraordinary um film um you're a film buff you'll know the one where sort of it's all about adolf hitler in the bunker and, and downfall where, downfall and where yes. you know it's more about the psychological state of Hitler, yes. um and and just how removed from reality he was um there's something unreal. There's a huge sense of unreality uh, with 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 uh, with with Putin. The thing that has most chilled me, and there, there are sometimes tiny things um, that probably are missed by a lot of people. But there's one fact uh, that, that 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 struck me about this invasion that absolutely chills me to the bone because it's about the mindset of what the Ukrainian people are up against. Um, Apparently, lots of the Russian columns, uh, uh, the infantry, the mechanized infantry and the armor that is attacking Ukraine contains within it um, tr individual trucks um, that are basically um, crematoria. Yeah. I heard this, yes. And, of course, a lot of politicians and people in the West have been saying, well, it's going to be interesting what happens when the body bags start to pile up and go back to Moscow, and how will the ordinary Russian people react? Well, when you realise that it looks as if when there are Russian casualties, when there are deaths, actually the bodies are going to be incinerated, they're going to be eviscerated. Um, and that there are going to be no body bags, that that therefore the state is going to write to mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and loved ones and basically say, I'm terribly sorry, but your son or daughter or whatever fell uh, defending Mother Russia. Um, but the, I'm terribly sorry, there is no body. That is a level of wickedness and of lying, um, which is extraordinary. And, and the last thing I'll say just in this opening bit, let's not forget all manner of Russian leaders historically who quite frankly have ended up going mad because, because often to run Russia, they end up not only lying to the people, but lying to themselves. And along those journeys, they always end up doing things like this, um, incinerator trucks, to lie to their own side yes. so can't have thought that would do much for the morale of the troops once they find out that that's what's going to happen to them what do you think his aim i mean and unless we're assuming that he is you know really ready to be fitted into a straitjacket what do you think his aim is going to be complete occupation of ukraine 
I, th- I, I well, the answer is um, given the state he seems to be in, the, the mental state. Uh, I mean, when he convened the National Security Council of the night, he actually vilified publicly on television uh, one of the um, one of his uh, intelligence chiefs. And, and I would have thought that in Russia that brings its own risks. But it's, it's not, you know, it's not an administration that appears to be a happy or united amorphous mass. Um, Putin was really going for them and and bullying them and doing it openly on television. Mm. So, given that mindset, uh, where this is going to go. I don't know. I suppose uh, in the dark night of the soul, my concern would be that he's going to capture Ukraine, but then he's going to go on. I don't think um, he is potty enough yet to uh, invade a, uh, a NATO country uh, and therefore run the risk of an Article 5 moment. Uh, but I do think that he could try and capture Moldova and basically link up with the enclave of Transnistria. And, but, but what all this means is that Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland are back on the front line. And think about the history that those peoples have been through young people, their parents and their grandparents, and what they've lived through in those states. Um, they must be terrified because to be on the front line uh, uh, of, 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 of what could become a sort of greater Russia uh, with Putin at the helm um, is unspeakable. Um, Tim, that's perhaps a good moment just for us to take a brief pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Simon Rears. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. We are naturally discussing um, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and Tim, before we move on to other subjects, there are so many things we, we could be talking about, but how much do you think the the behavior of the western nations in the past year or so maybe longer but certainly since the retreat from afghanistan is responsible for emboldening putin do you do you think there is any responsibility there or do you feel he would have done this whatever i I get the impression that he would have done this uh, whatever um uh, i think the indebtedness of the west uh versus his colossal reserves i mean he mm-hmm. had something in the order of six or seven hundred uh, billion dollars worth of dosh in reserves and he uh so he's sitting pretty pretty you know financially um he can he can pretty much sit out for quite some time mm-hmm. whatever we throw at him um um uh I mean, I think you can intellectualize these things and say, oh, we made, we pulled out of Afghanistan that emboldened him. No, I think that Putin for some time, um, long before we 
people out of Afghanistan wrote and articulated and said in various places that uh, he wasn't, he was never happy with the collapse of uh, Soviet communism. Uh, he said he thought it was the, the greatest disaster of, of the 20th century. Um, I think he felt it personally. He felt personally slighted and humiliated. Um, and uh, he, th I think he thought that Russia had lost its place in the world and he has long dreamed of a sort of greater Russia, a Russian empire. And, and that takes you on then to the next bit, which is, will this crisis also lead, quite frankly, to the reunification of Belarusia and Russia into some kind of unitary state mm -hmm. or federation or confederation? Uh, and what will be the implications of that? So I think this is one of those extraordinary pages in future history books that students and scholars and academics will be studying for many, many decades. Serious boundaries can be withdrawn here and serious consequences and unintended yes. consequences. Um, I'm reading a very depressing piece in um, the newspaper today from Alistair Heath and the Telegraph. Um, and the headline is, the world is sliding into a new dark age of poverty, irrationality and, and war. I mean, very depressing. And yet at the same time, you find it difficult reading it to disagree really with much of what he said, that perhaps he is just being unduly pessimistic. What do you think the West's reaction now should be, bearing in mind that I guess the appetite for actually um, going into Ukraine um, would be pretty minimal, but people are already saying that the, you know, the financial sanctions are woefully inadequate. Germany obviously has put a temporary halt at least um, to the Nord Stream 2 pipe, pipeline. Um, um, Macron's diplomacy didn't seem really to bear fruit um what do you think the country should be doing or even are capable of, of doing so so um i i think that on so i think there are several unintended consequences could occur uh one of those for example is that one of the consequences of this is that putin's actions can be so terrifying uh particularly to uh friends in scandinavia that um that Sweden and Finland might stop being the historically neutral countries they've been, mm. and they might sign up to NATO. That is which Putin would actually regard as being aggressive, of course. And he would, of course, interpret that as aggressive, yeah. although they would regard it as defensive. Um, of course, there's history, modern history between Russia and Finland. Let's not forget the uh, mm. Winter War in the Second World War when Finland beat the Russians. Uh, and, but, but, you know, Sweden, we tend to think of Sweden as being a fairly neutral, benign, social democratic mm. Scandinavian country. And the same with Finland. Finland alone has an army of 350,000 uh, people and Sweden invests very heavily in its armed forces and it has a modern concept of what is called total defense which involves all manner of the population and civil society so it's very interesting um, so that 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 could be an un unintended consequence uh, for, for Russia on the financial side I think that Britain and other countries and the West will gradate its response over the hours and days ahead the nuclear option of course um, in, in finance is to go beyond sanctions and actually to remove Russia from dollar and pound trading, but also to remove it for what is called the SWIFT system, yes. SWIFT the payment system. Which uh, was what happened to Iran. But, is but this is Russia. incredibly difficult Where because, because the, the, the West is apparently buying about $700 million worth of 
energy and commodities every day from Russia, How according to according to Bloomberg. Well, I'm sure so, they're, they're right. So the first thing is that Russia has built its own version of SWIFT. It's built its own mm. competitors to MasterCard and Visa in the last three or four years. And it's done, I think, probably a remarkably good job. So would it work? Question mark. Secondly, um, there are all kinds of potential unintended consequences. Uh, Russia is an exporter, as you've just said, of huge amounts of oil and gas. Uh, it is moving ever closer to cooperate with China. Um, and also, let's not forget, away from minerals and, 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 and energy, things like wheat. Um, Russia supplies vast amounts of wheat to all kinds of players globally. And, uh, and removing them from you know, trading completely or indeed with the financial system could have extraordinary consequences uh, for, for certain uh, other states and indeed have second order conflicts like starvation and again, the huge movement of populations and refugees. One of the potential uh, impacts of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, and this is quite open, we know this, is that already leaders in Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania and others are talking about a possible influx within a matter of days of somewhere around 5 million people. And that's quite conservative because Ukraine has a population of 45 million. They're not all going to move, but you only need a percentage. Yes. Second biggest country in Europe after Russia, isn't it, Ukraine? It is, yeah. it is. And of course, you know, you can argue the toss, as, as historians do, there were, there were periods where Russia, it was part of Russia. There were periods where it wasn't. There was, a, you know, 100 years ago, there was, uh, you know, Russia invaded. Um, and Russia under Stalin starved vast numbers of, 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 of the Ukrainian population. I mean, we, we know about the Holocaust, uh, but there's also a Holodomor, and Ukraine suffered a Holodomor, mm. where they probably lost, at the hands of the Russians, four million people who were starved into submission and, and who died. So it, it is grotesque, it's unspeakable, but we're in the eye of the storm, and this is what is happening this week in Eastern Europe. Can you believe it? So clearly, financial reaction is going to be incredibly difficult. But that doesn't mean perhaps that individuals, um, you know, the various Russian oligarchs who seem to find, you know, London such an hospitable home for, for them, their children at public schools, and certainly for their wealth. Um, presumably, one can target that. And I've not long come back from skiing in France, a place called Courchevel, just full of, of, of Russians. We didn't go to the very expensive bit, but I mean, the partying that goes on then, the planes flying into the seventh most dangerous airport in the world, almost all Russians, planes and helicopters, I mean, in, incessantly. Um, so, you know, Putin may not like the West, but the Russians seem to. Well, the, the reason many Russians like countries like Britain, France and others, and Italy and the United States, whatever, is is quite simple. If you are successful in Russia, if you have a business or you make money, um, you tend not to keep it in Russia uh, because uh, you run the risk of it being expropriated mm. by Putin and his cronies. So actually many of the people over here are over here because they don't like Putin and they don't trust him. Um, and there isn't the rule of law and there is not the civility and the democracy and the inclusion and the diversity and all the rest of it that we have here. So we must not just default to the concept that all Russians who are here 
are bad people. Many of them are here because they're escaping what they discreetly recognize to be an increasingly unsavory regime. Mm. So this is complicated. Um, the other thing I would say, uh, there are two things. One is, uh, I wonder what is going on today, really going on within Russia's diplomatic community, its academic community, and indeed uh, the higher echelons of, it, of its military, for example, that the general staff. Yeah. I'm not persuaded that this is a harmonious and universally admiring group of people who just purely love Putin. I would imagine there's all kinds of debate and concern because at the end of the day, uh, Russia is now destroying and sullying its reputation for the next probably third to half a century. This is something that is going to echo down the generations. It is almost an Adolf Hitler invasion. Yes. yes, but a, a lack of, of, of approval among some elements of the military or the intelligentsia and, 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 and so on is not necessarily going to translate into trying to topple Putin. I mean, anybody who has spoken out against Putin has, has been dealt with pretty swiftly in the past few years. Absolutely right. I mean, he, he is almost a character of a James Bond villain, but the moral high ground and the intellectual high ground and civility and your values are often what sustain you over the long term. Mm. You know, um, and lots of tyrants look to be very strong uh, and they have their moment, but often, uh, particularly in the Russian context, actually, uh, they then move on. I mean, for example, there are all those moments in, in, in the late 50s and 60s where, where Khrushchev looked incredibly strong, banging his shoe at the United Nations and indeed the instigator of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What did we know? Well, what we discovered was that two years later, in 64, the system got rid of him. I wonder how secure, I asked the question, how secure really is Putin? The other dynamic here is China. Um, hmm. Should oh. we just take a brief, brief pause and then and then we'll discuss, right? Just, just want to give you a, a moment to, to gather your breath, Tim. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Big Picture on Share Radio, where... I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. We are, of course, discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Tim, you were just about to, to talk about um, the importance of, of China, because they are not condemning uh, what has happened, as far as I'm aware. No, and at a very practical level, the whereas the United Kingdom, France, Germany, uh, other EU uh, states, and indeed uh, the United States have advised their citizens to get out, um, the Chinese government have simply advised their citizens in Ukraine uh, to, if they're in a vehicle, for example, or on the street, just to make it uh, abundantly clear that they're Chinese. If you're in a car, their advice is display the Chinese flag. So clearly the Russian military have been instructed uh, to, um, to, uh, to, to be kind uh, mm. to, to Chinese nationals. And that tells you a lot about the relationship, I think, between Beijing and Moscow. But, you know, Crane... Ukraine is a very large country. It does have a population of 45 million people um, and it produces uh, lots and lots of goodies. Not, it's not just historically what we call the breadbasket of Europe, but it also has a highly skilled workforce. It produces all kinds of engineering, machinery. Um, it produces um, marine engines, aircraft, you know, uh, and for example, China's first aircraft carrier for its fleet um was actually 
Ukrainian. Um, Ukraine exports an awful lot to China. Uh, trade between Russia and China is large. Trade between Ukraine and Russia is large. Um, it, they were all going to be playing a part in the Chinese-led initiative that is Belt and Road. Mm. So where this goes now uh, is going to be interesting because what we potentially face um, where the history books might be going is that yes communism or communism 1.2 as we knew it uh collapsed um in when in china they started liberalized really from 1979 80 81 onwards they started a reboot where they sort of went down a progressively liberal and capitalist road uh, Russia wasn't, or the Soviet Union wasn't so lucky in that they didn't reboot, they weren't fast enough to move, and so what what happened was the system mm. collapsed. But basically, they've taken a sort of Lenin one step back, and um, now uh, they've, they've refreshed their economy, they've modernised, uh, they've invested heavily in certain aspects of the Russian military, they're now taking a, 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 a sort of a leap forward, they're taking two steps forward, maybe there'll be an integration with Russia, Belarusia, Ukraine in some way uh, moving forward, there'll be a huge deal with China, and that we now for the first time face this colossal block uh, of former Soviet and Chinese communist territory that may have uh, a more viable economy moving forward, but um, remains uh, increasingly authoritarian and repressive mm. uh, in a digital world. And where that goes is a big question. I mean, you talked earlier about just how enmeshed we are with Russia when it comes to things like wheat and oil and gas, but I mean, trade with China is extraordinarily difficult to disentangle ourselves from that. And yet, how do we keep trading with with you know, countries that just are ignoring international law? Yeah. I mean, okay, China, China, not the same as as Russia yet. But um, is it the end of of globalization? I mean, it's very difficult to disentangle ourselves. It is, and, and, and we're too close to it, Simon. I mean, we need probably. Uh, another few months or a year to even begin to be able to get the right focus mm. on these hours and days. We're just too close to it. But um, I would have thought that what we are going to see uh, is China and Russia, certainly for the next few years, moving ever closer together. What we do not know is how effective uh, resistance in Ukraine is going to be, how, you know, how effective Russia is going to be at subduing the majority of that population um, over the short and medium term. Uh, and, you know, it, it, is Ukraine going to be a slam dunk for Russia, or is it actually going to be a sort of Chechenian problem that goes on for a lot of years, a lot of resistance mm. fighting and, and problems? Um, will NATO have what I call a 1977 moment? In, in the mid-70s, Brezhnev was building up his forces, uh, investing very heavily uh, in his uh, naval fleet, particularly uh, with more submarines. I mean, the Russians at that point were launching more submarines each year than the Royal Navy had. And the NATO response was to increase NATO funding from 1977 onwards at 3% per year. Are we now going to see uh, a renewed financial commitment to NATO and, and forces moving much more up to that Slovakian, Polish, mm. uh, front line? The other thing to say is there have been quite cosy relationships 
uh, between Russia and Turkey in recent years. Well, Turkey has a, a major purview with the uh, Black Sea. Well, after this, Russia is going to have a colossal influence on the Black Sea. Is Turkey really going to be happy with, with that new settlement on the Black Sea? Um, where will Turkish and Russian relations go? Um, this is a moving kaleidoscope, and there is no way that Putin can really know where this is all going and what the first, second and third order effects are going to be. Um, but I think the backdrop to the canvas uh, is um, some kind of renewed block between China, Belarus, maybe Ukraine, if, if, if they are completely subdued, uh, and Russia. And that means that the West, even in its highly indebted state, as, as we've discussed over the years, mm. is facing something very new. And the ultimate question of all is this. Are our liberal values, our democracy, our notion of circulating elites, at, coupled with a, a sort of a welfare, well, state welfare and, and a free market, is all of that package really right and competitive for the 21st century? As I said on this program many times before, you know, the debate around Heathrow Airport and a new runway started soon after I was born mm. and I'm 56. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, is the Elizabeth line uh, in London, the, the new under, you know, tube line, is it open yet? Is it, you know, is it completely open? Is it going to be, when's it going to happen? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had HS2, uh, but now the eastern part of the northern line of, of its northern strip is being cancelled. We don't do big projects. We don't do infrastructure well. The new block I've described to the east does it very well. And they're putting in lots of infrastructure. Uh, uh, they're not, yes, they're not having lots of consultation projects and involving lots of local people. I mean, there's a degree of hefty authoritarian and central direction here. But boy, are they putting in infrastructure, high-speed train, new ports aimed at growth. And right across the West, um, we are finding growth and doing really big new projects very difficult. So the question is, if we're going to have a strategic refresh or a reboot, what sort of governance, what sort of mechanisms do we need to um, tweak or introduce or, or, or refresh that will return us uh, to growth, uh, um, uh, to prosperity, um, without going too far down the road of authoritarian centralism or, or, or top-down control. So that what I think is going to emerge from this are lots of questions over about the nature of the governance of these two blocks, sort of the West versus this authoritarian block. And the ultimate threat, and I speak as a woolly, flabby, middle-class, liberal academic at a university that is quite rightly you know, awash with sentiment and belief in equality, diversity and inclusion. And I say that very proudly, um, but are we in a society that has got the right type of governance um, uh, and really to sustain us for, the, for this century?
that's what I think the big question is that's going to come from from the events we see these days. Uh, Tim, <laughs> thank you uh, very much indeed um, for lightning quick um, reaction and indeed thought about what the future might hold. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back with me in a fortnight where perhaps the picture will be um, a little clearer. Tim, thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.